Well, yet again, the world has woken up to a bizarre election result. The people just can't help themselves when it comes to surprising us. But in studio to help us figure out what on earth just happened in the United Kingdom and what might happen next, Sebastian Hamilton, group editor, Irish Mail Newspapers, Terry Prone, chairman of the Communications Clinic, and Mark Hennessy, news editor of the Irish Times and its former London editor. We're going to kick off with a little bit of Theresa May speaking in 10 Downing Street on her return from Buckingham Palace yesterday. Our two parties have enjoyed a strong relationship over many years and this gives me the confidence to believe that we will be able to work together in the interests of the whole United Kingdom. This will allow us to come together as a country and channel our energies towards a successful Brexit deal that works for everyone in this country, securing a new partnership with the EU which guarantees our long-term prosperity. That's what people voted for last June. That's what we will deliver. Now let's get to work. And that was Theresa May in a speech which talked about certainty almost as if the result hadn't actually happened. And now on the line we have David Cowling, former editor of political research at the BBC. And David, the last time we spoke was a few months after the last general election, which had necessitated an inquiry into how opinion polls had been managed because they've been so misleading. What's your assessment of how the polling performed this time? Well, we need another inquiry. Oh, dear. <laughs> I mean, the polls in the campaign started uh, with a 20-point conservative lead, and they came down to something like a a sort of six, seven-point conservative lead uh, on average, the last polls, and it was a a two-and-a-half-point conservative lead. So we've, we've got big problems. And the trouble that we face, as I'm sure you face in Ireland, is that Uh, the opinion polls tend to fashion the campaign. We look at them and say, goodness me, that's that's a picture in the mirror. We must must follow what those are saying. So for the 2015 election, we spent most of our time talking about hung parliament, when in fact there was no such thing. So remind us what were the problems identified in the last polls, and I thought they had tried to repair those flaws this time round. So what do you think happened this time? Well, they made desperate efforts to repair, because what we tend to forget is that whilst political opinion polls that we're familiar with probably constitute about three quarters of all the publicity of the polling companies, it actually accounts for only about one or two percent of their income. So their reputation in terms of their commercial clients is vitally important to them. And if they have a public car crash, then it's not in their interest to say nothing happened. We've got to get this sorted. So they tried. And one of the things I think that emerged very strongly from 2015 was that they were having great difficulty in, in I think, getting completely accurate uh, samples. So they were getting lots of people whom it was easy to get, people who responded straight away, and they tended to be a bit more labour inclined. But if they had actually spent a bit more money, a bit more time chasing people who were a bit reluctant to participate, then they would have found more conservatives and they would have had a more accurate result. What's happened this time after they've taken lots of steps to try and remedy this problem, God knows, and as my wife says, she's not telling. Um, and I think we need an inquiry to, to really not do a quick inquiry, but a, but, a, but a serious one that takes whatever time it takes to really try to get to the bottom of 
why it is so difficult these days to get at an accurate sample. Can we ever get there? Is there a magic ingredient we're missing? Or is there just that we've got to face up to the fact that uh, these days it's a near impossibility to get an accurate sample? Were some of the polls more accurate than others because they were using different methods? I mean, as far as I could see, the YouGov poll on the eve of polling ended up being the closest are they doing anything different? or Well, YouGov weren't, actually. Okay. The, sorry, the, the, the closest result came from a telephone poll by Servation, and the second closest to the final outturn poll came from a company, Kantar TNS, uh, which was online. So we have a telephone poll that was close, and we have an online poll that was close, and all the others, to varying degree, degrees, were less close than those. Um And it's repeating the sorts of gaps between reality, so to speak, or the real art result that that have found ominously familiar to anybody who lived through the 2015 polling car crash in in the UK. And they haven't cracked it, it seems, and they need to, uh, both for their public reputation and in a sense for for those of us who look to them to give us some really serious guidance on what the British public are thinking. And presumably that was what Theresa May had been counting on when she decided to call the election in the first place because she was looking at polls that were giving her a 20-point lead. To what extent do you think that poll was correct at the time and then changed over the course of the election or may not have been accurate at all in the first place? Now, that's a very, very interesting uh, question. Uh, And I don't know I have the answer to it. I can only give my guess. Um, I mean, if we think that all the polls have been wrong, then in a sense, it's easy to say, oh, well, the polls at the start were wrong. But I think it's the degree, the distance, if you like, between, let's say that they were all out a bit. Mm. Well, they were all out a bit at a 20% level at the start of the six-week campaign in this election, and they were out a bit when they were at seven. But I don't think that you know the difference between the 20% lead for the Conservatives six weeks ago and the 2.5% that resulted was just was polling uh, error. I think there was some shift. Uh, the polls may have exaggerated the Conservative lead. They may have flattered it, but it was still a very substantial lead, I think. Um, and most, you know, there was never moments where people at the start of the campaign were saying to me, you know, these polls aren't right. You know, all I, all my experience on the ground tells me that these polls are really seriously wrong. Now, I've gone through elections where people have said that to me, and mm. I, if I'd have been sensible, I would have followed their advice, but I invariably didn't. But nobody was saying that to me in this campaign. So I don't think this was a case of wrong polls at the start and less wrong polls at the end. I think there really was a shift in the campaign. And then just finally, and I'll let you go after this, in relation to the result itself, and of course I'm sure you know we have this completely different electoral system in Ireland, um, PR by STV, you have first passed the post. And I saw one analysis that said Labour got 40% in this election. And when Tony Blair won a landslide election, he just got 41%. That tiny percent made such a difference in terms of seat delivery. Is there any um, sense or willingness on the the part of British people that the electoral system isn't serving them well? Or or do they like it? 
Well, I don't say they like it, but I don't think they like the alternatives because we had a referendum, a national referendum here uh, in 2011, I think it was, where there was a resounding defeat for a proposition to move from first-past-the-post to alternative vote. I don't think it's a love affair, but I think it's one that people feel more often than not delivers firm government. But the thing to remember very quickly about all this talk about 40% versus Tony Blair, the reason why Labour... Uh, isn't doing as well is that in in 2001 and in 1997 Tony Blair and the sorry the Labour Party utterly crushed the Conservatives. It was the distance between that 41, 40 whatever percent, and where the Tories were mm. that gave them the majority. In this election, uh, the Tories were two and a half points ahead of Labour, not about ten points behind. Right. And so Labour, you know, this is a swing of about 2% from Conservative to Labour. That's the fourth lowest swing to Labour since the 1950 general election. So it's, I mean, Labour did well, of course they did, but some of this talk is getting more and more silly, it seems to me, on this side of the pond, with people going on and on about, uh, you know, it's, it's almost the equivalent of the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, people are saying they got Labour got more than in nineteen in in the two thousand and five general than Labour got in the two thousand and five general election. But in the two thousand and five general election, Labour had a majority of sixty six seats in government. What's Mr. Corbyn's majority? Oh, he doesn't have one. Mm. He lost, and there are no prizes. There are no. Uh, it sounds brutal, but it's true. There are no Oscars for you know favourite loser in British politics. Labour did well, but they lost. Okay, well, David Cowling, that's a good way of looking at it. Thank you for joining me. Um, Sebastian Hamilton then, uh, with that uh, caution from David Cowling on what Labour achieved in this election, what do you think happened? No, well, I think David's absolutely right. Um, You know, Tony Blair, at his worst, won 60 more seats than Jeremy Corbyn at his best, facing what was one of the worst general election campaigns I can remember in, in 25 years of of watching and covering politics, from particularly from the incumbent government. I mean, it was, in every respect, a badly run campaign. You know, when you have a party leader who wants to be prime minister and won't go on television to debate the other guys, that's appalling. You have a manifesto that basically says, we're going to keep giving you more pain, everybody happy with that. You're not going to win votes like that. And also, you know, you had a six, nearly seven-week campaign. Well, I'm sorry, if you have a snap election, it's got to be snappy. You know, you've got to get on with it. They gave Jeremy Corbyn time to build up momentum. and But at the end of the day, I think they had a message that, that, that didn't resonate because it wasn't even a message. Uh, they had a candidate who, particularly in television terms, and, and television is all important in, in modern elections, was frankly pretty hopeless. Um, And when you put those things together and you stretch out this campaign for seven weeks, how can you expect to do well? So why did she do it then? Well, I think it was a reasonable call at the time because, you know, she had a big lead in the polls. There's There's some very troubling economic data coming down the tracks. So, you know, the data was showing her Britain could be, you know, potentially in recession within a year or two, certainly by the time of the next election. There's, you know, Tory candidates facing 
criminal inquiries into their election expenses. So it was a good time to do it as long as you didn't screw up the campaign. Uh, and, you know, in politics, you always have to make these judgment calls. I actually think it was a good judgment call. Snap elections are always a little bit tricky, but if you're going to do it, you have to then have a really good, strong, powerful, quick campaign with a clear, powerful message and get out there before anyone can change their minds. That's how you deliver a result. Terry Prone, did you think it was a good idea at the time? I didn't think it was a good idea in the way it was framed. Uh, Two things about it. First of all, she had said she wasn't going to call a snap election and she called a snap election. You cannot then run a campaign talking about stability um, when you are the essence of instability yourself on that and so many other fronts. But the second thing is that I have a a mistrust whenever I've been involved in, in general elections or other elections where the incumbent has sought a stronger mandate, it puts chills up my spine because, first of all, it tends to weaken them in front of the electorate. But more importantly, it's a classic process call. It's very much like the Hillary Clinton thing. You know, if you go back through what Hillary Clinton was about, it was always about process. It was always self-directed. It was always something that she could do in a different way rather than actually understanding where people were at, the change they wanted, the dreams and hopes that they had. And I was astonished at the heartless, brainless process thing that simply said, give me a stronger mandate to negotiate Brexit. She had a perfectly good mandate. There was no need for anything else. And it was amazingly like the Cameron debacle with the referendum. Again, wasn't necessary to do it at the time and face plant. Uh, I was only half watching a lot of it, but I did notice that she started off, you know, from when she'd won her position, doing this Margaret Thatcher kind of take, I am so strong and stable and an iron woman. And by the end, when Jon Snow was interviewing her in Channel 4, this bug-eyed, <laughs> sweating, panic-stricken woman who was obviously feeling the pressure. It, what a backlash. You can't... I train politicians all of the time. You cannot train somebody out of fundamental dullness. And this woman is fundamentally dull. When a woman cannot rise above the kitten heels to have something that makes people say, wow, that's an interesting idea, then you have real problems. And the old-fashioned notion that if you give somebody a line or a couple of lines and say, now, just repeat that... It is always an injustice to an electorate. An electorate is simply not that dumb. More importantly, it riles media. Media truly hated, particularly broadcast media. And they have an almost reflex response to it, which was to give a bigger dig than they needed to give otherwise. And how would you contrast her performance then with Corbyn? Well, The thing is that you have to go back to the electorate. The electorate wanted change. An electorate always wants authenticity. And the one central thing an electorate wants is something to believe in. And Corbyn is remarkably charisma-free, but he is authentic. And he had the courage to present a manifesto which was more left-wing than I think anything in the last 30 years. And so people said, this is real. This is believable. Now, your your expert, David Cowley, yes. um, did say that there has been a certain amount of exaggeration and that basically he lost. 
Theresa May didn't win. Let's be really clear. If to go into government you required the DUP as your kingmakers, which I believe yesterday's Evening Standard called them, uh, that's not a win. Uh, Mark Hennessy, what was your take on Corbyn? Because the narrative before the election was, this guy is a total disaster and this is going to just crush the Labour Party and it didn't happen. Why do you think it didn't? Well, it fundamentally didn't happen because it was a woeful Tory campaign. Had it been a professionally run orchestrated campaign, Corbyn would never have got the audience. Now, one of the things that you must understand, if you, when you look at somebody like Corbyn, who's been around for you know nearly five decades in British politics and has been you know central to so many uh, movements on the left, but never brilliantly known by the public at large, for many people watching Corbyn, he was a fresh face. You know, despite the fact that he's sixty-eight years mm. of age, they would never have heard an extended interview. And on the occasions when he would have been on uh, the news at one or, or, or question time 20 years ago, they weren't paying attention. So by the time they got to him this time around, he had a degree of freshness. He's avuncular and Jeremy is a nice bloke. Right? I mean, the problem with, with Corbyn is not Corbyn, it's the people around him uh, to a very large degree. And uh, so he, would, he therefore got an audience, but he would not have got an audience had he been up against what you normally expect Tory governments, uh, Tory uh, uh, election campaigns to do, which is to be professional and to, 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 to put the ball in the back of the net. So if people wanted that something new, does that mean that he actually defied the narrative and did well once they got to know him? Or if anybody else had been leading the Labour Party, they would have done even better again. And he's still a hand. Well, that's a good question. And I mean, the difficulty that Labour has is that they don't have any uh, credible replacement. So uh, I don't think you know none of that is going to... Uh, John MacDonald would have been a much harder sell because you know John is, is actually a genuine Marxist and, and, and is proud of the label. Um, Corbyn is slightly, um, ever so slightly uh, different from that. Um, he was blessed by the fact that the, the low expectations uh, that existed, nobody expected him to be able to finish a sentence, let alone run a country. So when they heard him finish a sentence and actually in many cases finishing a sentence that reflected well on their lives. I mean, I was quite struck by the reaction that took place to the leak of the Labour manifesto and, you know, some of the Tory press who yet again disgraced themselves uh, during the campaign were saying that, you know, this man was going to do a Herod-like cull of your first children. And when you read the document, he was talking about the nationalisation of trains. Which now, people love. Right. Now, yeah. if, if you're, let's take London, for instance. If you're on Southwest and you're heading uh, out of Twickenham, heading Southwest, or you're heading on Southern uh, to Brighton, and the idea comes along, somebody comes along and tells you that they're going to nationalise the trains, you will go down on your bended knee and kiss them. You know, rather than dealing with the morons who are currently running the service. Yeah. So, you know, and this is whether you are a plumber or a stockbroker, because this stuff cuts through the idea that everything can be parceled into neatly left and right. And that just because somebody is rich doesn't mean that they can't understand that there's a greater role for the state in certain areas. We might People might disagree about where, but, you know, it, it isn't boxable uh, in that fashion. And. Uh, then you saw the dementia attacks. I mean, I watched um, Damien Green on Andy Marr a couple of uh, Sundays ago. And Damien is a really nice human being, right? I mean, he's he's as far away from your hard-hearted Tory as it is possible to get. And he's getting absolutely slaughtered about the dementia attack. And he's trying to argue in a desperate bid to survive until the end of the programme <laughs> where he's saying uh, that a 100,000 is a reasonable inheritance. Now, if you are... Th- this managed the rare achievement in life 
that it terrified somebody who's 83 years of age and it also terrified their 40-year-old son or daughter mm-hmm. who is at one point faced with the idea that the parents are going to be around for another 10 or 15 years and will break them uh, one way or the other. <laughs> and secondly, that there won't be anything left in the inheritance. Yeah. I mean, it is some achievement to actually manage to annoy everybody across the piece on a subject like that. It was insane. Now, I mean, clearly they are right that there has to be something done about social care. You can't, you know, what all of us are, are getting older on average. Um, people are going to have to work longer and there are all hard Yeah, calls, and we have the fair deal here yeah, where, gotta, you know, the yeah. state gets a bit of the you house. You've got to do that, but you don't do, I mean, there are times when a government has to lie to people. You know, for our own uh, uh, safety. I hear, I hear now. You you do not tell people (laughs) that you are going to do the things that are going to be necessary to look after the old in halfway through uh, an election campaign. Particularly not when your main cohort of voters is 60 plus. Exactly. I mean, absolutely insane. And normally, and, and what's even worse is that there was no consultation. Uh, within tourists. This was Nick Timothy's idea, who has worked very closely with Fiona Hill in uh, number 10. They've run it like a Stalinist gulag. Nobody has been allowed to get in uh, into the place. So she's had nobody around her. And, and, and literally, this was dropped into the manifesto at the last minute without any discussion with anybody. Sebastian Hamilton, want to talk a bit about the influence of the newspapers in the United Kingdom? Because I don't think Irish people are used to this kind of partisan um, um, uh, behaviour by them. So the Daily Telegraph, you know, they came out the day before. Your country needs you. The Sun, don't chuck Britain in the core bin and a silly photo of Jeremy Corbyn in a bin. And the list, they have this bullet point beside it. Terrorist friend. Useless on Brexit, destroyer of jobs, enemy of business, massive tax hikes, puppet of unions, of unions, nuclear surrender, ruinous spending, open immigration, and Marxist extremists. They don't hold back. The Daily Express vote for May today. They said, "Your sister paper, the Daily Mail, let's reignite British spirit." And a great uh, photo of Theresa May. And um, just the Times, the Guardian, and uh, the FT, not quite as. Uh, binary on it but the Daily Mirror one of the few tabloids that actually took Corbyn's side lies damned lies and Theresa May in a really ugly photo of her Um, how did the British press get away with being that partisan? Sorry you think the press shouldn't be allowed to say what they think? I think I think they shouldn't um, be so over the top in their okay. in in their views, and and who do you think should be appointed to say what they're allowed to say and not say? Very good question. I think when they go on the attack like they did against Corbyn, the smears. So I believe the Daily Mail the day before the um, election had thirteen pages going on the attack against Corbyn. Do you not think it's over the top? No. Well, firstly. British newspapers have been doing that for probably 150 years. Uh, you know, the News of the World became the most popular page, newspaper in Britain by being salacious. It reported on divorce cases. Uh, and, you, you know, you think back to... to, to and, and it's politics, it's sport. You know, if anybody here remembers Graham Taylor as a turnip in the sun... Uh, the former England manager, or Steve McLaren, uh, the Wally, the Wally with the Broly. Um, that's part of the appeal of the Sun to, to its readers is is absolutely a sense of mischief and, and, and a sense of saying what ordinary people say in the language that ordinary people say it. Secondly, I think the notion that 
that Irish papers have never been partisan. You know, I, you know, it's payback time. I think if that, if yeah, that has any and, any, any resonance, and it does. But, the, but the, 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 I think the most important thing is that you know everyone makes a, a tremendous fuss about the line the papers take, even though these are newspapers whose job is to represent the views of their readers. You know, it's not their, their job is not to be a mouthpiece for a politician or a political party. Is to represent their readers, and I think that's the job of any newspaper. But actually. are they not? It's not to represent politicians. It's not to take the side of governments or of big companies. It's to, it's to work out what your readers think and what's important to them, and to give them a message that will resonate. And the reason that papers like the Sun and the Mail in the UK are successful in their markets is that they understand their readers very well. So, you know. Of course, it's different from what we do here. You know, it would every every press in every country is different. You know, if you've ever read the, the New York tabloids, mm. you know, you'll see they have a very different approach to to to, uh, to all these things. I remember when when my dad's biography of JFK came out came out, kind of six hundred pages of scholarly research, and the front page of the New York Post was JFK's wild oats. You know. Um, that's the media. The, the question we need to ask really is, one, does it have any great impact? And none of the data suggests that it really does. And two, is it really any great – is it any different from, from what we're seeing, for example, on social media, where people express views that are far more extreme than anything you'll find in the papers? And, you know, that's, that material is promulgated by Facebook, by Google – all these people. Oh, you can't but, but use social that's... media to defend what the mainstream but I'm not, media is doing, no? Well, I don't think I'm not. I don't think there's an issue of defending. You know, I think if if it's about defending the right of newspapers to say what they think, and the right of journalists to write what they believe, and again, this notion that it's one-sided. You know, when, as you pointed out, the Mirror was you know, equally vitriolic about Theresa May. If you look at some of the things that are written in, say, The Guardian or The Observer about uh, about the people they dislike in mm. politics, or even in the Irish media, you know, there's some terrible things said about, you know, about all, you know, take the abortion debate, take the debate over the National Maternity Hospital. There are things said which people believe in passionately and they make a strong argument for So, Terry Prone, some people would say, look, if you're talking about the son, they're not representing their readers. They're trying to influence their readers. And the son is owned by Murdoch. And he does have a political agenda, which is coming out of the newspaper. What's your analysis of it? Well, the first thing is whether they're seeking to influence or seeking to reinforce. And there's a very strong case for that they are seeking to reinforce. I'm amused listening to Sebastian because I'm not sure I can remember in The Observer or The Guardian recently anything of quite such spirited vulgarity as what we have seen in the tabloids against Corbyn. Did you but read the Sarah Vine piece <laughs> in The Observer? I can't repeat it on air because it is so obscene. But because it doesn't get as much attention, mostly because these papers aren't very successful, 
doesn't mean it's not there. Okay, well, the go thing, on. The thing that I, I would quarrel with you is the use of your word smear. Because if we're talking specifically about the issue of Jeremy Corbyn being friendly to terrorists, this seemed to me to be a seeding of the clouds exercise in the Daily Telegraph at least two weeks before the election. And I was looking at it thinking, now, this is interesting. First of all, this is in preparation for any kind of terrorist activity that may occur, bearing in mind that they were on on high alert. But the second thing is that they had the pictures. They had pictures of Jeremy Corbyn and Gerry Adams maybe 20 years ago but clearly intimate friends, close colleagues listening and talking to each other. I'm not sure that it's a smear to bring that up. But going back to what Sebastian said, I'm not sure that it worked at all. Because when the uh, terrorist attack happened on London Bridge, you did have a resurfacing of that stuff. But much faster you had, and particularly on social media, the thing that said, hang on a second... What's Theresa May flexing muscles she doesn't have for? For six years she was Home Secretary. She had the opportunity to do anything she wanted in a growing terrorist context. And what she do? She got rid of 20,000 cops. Mark Hennessy, what's your take on something like The Sun, you know, which some people see as, as a tool of Murdoch versus, as Sebastian was saying, you know, papers like The Guardian who have their own views and make those known clearly, perhaps in a more refined way, but they still campaign? Well, I mean, I think the, the blame would lie on both sides. Um, and it's not the kind of work that I would have uh, any interest in, in doing. If you can predict what a paper's opinion is going to be on a subject before you read the text, then there's something wrong with the opinion. You know, mm-hmm. Because that's like saying that everything that Labour does is awful or everything that the Tories does is awful. The reality is that uh, different issues have to be judged in different ways. Some things are reasonably okay, some things are wonderful, some things are absolutely appalling. And you have to attempt to look at it in a, in a fair-minded fashion and make a judgment call on the merits of the issue rather than on whether you've made a predetermined decision on whether Jeremy Corbyn or Theresa May should be uh, Prime Minister. What about and, the- but on the point of The Guardian, I mean, The, the, the Guardian can, can make a, a habit of this where they, they, they dress it up and it's better written or at least more flowery written, but it can be utterly and completely poisonous as well. So what about the idea, though, that British newspaper readers know what they're um, buying? So they buy The Guardian because they do share the views and they buy The Sun because they do share the views. So there's nothing sinister. It's actually quite transparent and therefore it's okay. And maybe in Irish newspapers, we think we have a more neutral uh, press, but actually... You know, there'll be stories planted in one or the other that may be a product of a political bias within those newspapers. We just don't really know about it. Yeah, you can make that argument. I, I wouldn't accept the latter uh, end of that okay. uh, particularly. But in terms of the former end, that at least it's declared. So if you want, you know in advance what it's selling on the tin. Uh, I think the difficulty with that is that uh, the, the, the debate gets coarsened. And I mean, that has been multiplied now by the impact of social media. And that isn't to excuse any of the sins mm. of the press either here or in the UK. But it is now uh, on a scale that's vastly worse uh, than anything that's happened before. I mean, people are also going to reinvent history. You know, already hearing Labour people talking about how brilliant their uh, social media campaign was and how they did X, Y and Z. I mean, to an extent, what there was was an audience out there that was waiting to hear a message 
I remember talking to business people uh, shortly before the Brexit uh, referendum and making the point to them that a few days before that if it was won, uh, it would be won because of people like them and people who ended up uh, their employees on uh, low-pay jobs with, with poor job insecurity and with fewer prospects of being able to own a home than any of their predecessors. And, and, can I, and Sebastian, feeds, yeah. Yeah, I just want to just get back to the real point, which was, you know, should newspapers be campaigning? Mm. And, and and I have to say, I think absolutely it's the most important thing they they do do. And I remember, for example... <sighs> Some years ago, when Bertie Ann was first in the tribunal, pretty much the only two papers in the state that called it as it was, that told people Bertie Ann was lying through his teeth on oath at the tribunal, were the Irish Times and the Irish Daily Mail. And we got dogs abuse for it. How dare we from say who? these terrible things from other sections of the Irish media? Um, you know. And it was really tough. And you were having an awful lot thrown at you, and of course by politicians as well, and, and, and particularly Fianna Fáil, which had an interest, particularly at the beginning, in, in, in protecting Bertie. Mm. You know, and that took guts to do, to go up against a man who was then the most powerful politician in the country. And whether you're campaigning for that or, you know, against when, when Fine Gael took medical cards away from, from, from chronically sick children mm. or whatever it is, the issue that you're campaigning on, I think it's vital more than ever nowadays that newspapers do campaign on behalf of their readers. Right. That they but, do feel can, if we believe something passionately and if we believe this decision or that decision yeah, but, is going to adversely yeah, affect yeah, the lives can, of our but readers, can you do then, that? We, then we have a duty on their behalf to say what we think right, but can and you, then let them make a choice. But can you do that without putting a politician in a bin, you know? Or, or as The Guardian put it, they said, Corbyn saw a campaign of vilification not seen since the 1980s assault on Michael Foote. Well, I mean, I'd say The Guardian has said that about pretty much every politician it supports for the last 20 years. Uh, they would have said it about Neil Kinnock. Mark? I'm sure they've no, said it about I mean, there's, there's a difference between campaigning and taking a view on a particular subject and being able to back up your, your, the, the story with facts and, and more facts and more facts and you eventually win the argument. It's a different ballgame when every adjective you use about politician X or Y is a negative one. And that's where I, I have a problem with it. I don't believe that is the place for, for newspapers. And it most certainly isn't the place for newspapers to do it in news columns. The different ballgame, perhaps, in your comment pages where everything is flagged as comment. Uh, Terry, one thing. So uh, what Corbyn did to try and fight against uh, the vilification he was getting in the papers, or maybe I shouldn't use the Guardian's term. <laughs> I'll scratch that. The opinion of the newspapers was he went out on rallies and speaking to crowds. And it was reminiscent of Bernie Sanders' campaign, you know, where you went out and you talked to the people. Did you see a reflection of the Sanders campaign in that and the people wanting a different kind of campaign and a different way to interact uh, with political leaders? I saw a huge desire to be in contact with ideas and possibilities for change. Um, I think that the the crowds that you saw at uh, Corbyn's uh, rallies it was just phenomenal. But you have to separate the actual outcome from what you might call the performance art. And even in the Bernie Sanders case, what we saw was performance art. It was fascinating. It was uplifting. It was all, but it didn't end up with anything. And I think the difference is that Corbyn has ended up with something. He is in a much more powerful position 
in the House of Parliament than he was before the thing started. Sebastian, I have to ask you about Nicola Sturgeon. I know you're a fan of hers. The Scottish National Party lost 20 seats. It was a bad result for her. It was a bad result. Um, the, the previous election was, was, was an absolutely perfect storm for the SNP. It was a high watermark that you could never hope to reach again. They were always going to lose seats off that. I agree with a lot of the, the, the analysis that this was in large part a rejection of the idea of a second referendum yeah. so soon after the first one. You know, a lot of my Scottish friends who would be SNP activists, even they thought that that was, was too much too soon and they didn't think it would be popular. So that's that's a mistake. Nevertheless, uh, you know, the SNP is the biggest party in Scotland. It's got the majority of seats. It's got the majority of votes. They're still running the Scottish Parliament, you know. Uh, and and Scotland has kind of divided a bit more on a traditional left-right lines with the SNP kind of taking the place of the Labour Party uh, and the Conservatives really kind of returning to where they've traditionally been in Scotland. You know, up until, people forget, you know, up until the, 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 the 1960s, Scotland was a was a stronghold for for the Conservatives, so in a sense, it's a rebalancing from from the extremes of what had gone before. It's not a great result for Nicola. I'm is very her, I'm very her... sorry for Alex Salmond because he is a brilliant politician mm. uh, and and who handled his defeat with with typical dignity. Were you going to say is her position? Uh, yeah, yeah. Would she last? Well, yeah. I think I think there's nobody within the SNP. Who who would be anywhere close to being a credible alternative? And as I said, you know, they've got the most seats, they've got the most votes, they run the Scottish Parliament. She's still very powerful in that in that domain. Now, Mark Hennessy, of course, this was all supposed to be about Brexit, and the whole point was that Theresa May could get more votes so they could concentrate on on doing the Brexit deal. She's going to be propped up by the DUP. Uh-huh. Can it last? Oh, it can last. There's no doubt about that. If they if they uh, approach it in a way, um, they've used the DUP before yeah. I mean, in the last uh, government when they had a twelve seat majority of their own, and the, the DUP were brought on board when they couldn't keep their own people in line. Now you have uh, the discipline that will be forced on parties. That often happens in a situation where the numbers are very tight, where you may be grumbling, but your choice is: do you want to go to the country tomorrow? So that imposes a degree of discipline. Is she the person to do it? No. Uh, the Tories do assassinations pr- pr- pretty well. So how uh, long do you think it'll take them to do this one? I don't know. I mean, she has bought time. Now, whether that's days, weeks or months, I don't know. Um, th- somebody will have to move against her. And whether anybody has the appetite for that or the capability of bringing people on side, Boris uh, Johnson, if he runs, is going to reignite all the old divisions within the Tories about uh, the people is who, who dislike anybody, him. Is there anybody, let's say they did get rid of her, is there anybody sane in the Conservative Party who who could get rid of this Brexit cult? Do a purge, and no, no, no. no. You see, I mean, everybody's already into rewrite. Um, I mean, what does this uh, election tell us about what the British think about Brexit? The reality is, I think we can safely say we don't know. But all of the opinion polls and all of the other detailed research has been done show that the people who voted for Brexit last year were happy that they'd done so. And a majority of those who had voted to stay in the European Union had 
become accustomed to the idea that they'd been beaten and they were prepared to go along with it. They mightn't have been wild about it, but they weren't going to the barricades to stop it. Uh, So she had the majority of British opinion behind her at the beginning of the campaign and there's not a lot of evidence uh, uh, since to suggest that they now want to do something different. There's all this talk uh, this morning about uh, soft Brexit and all of the rest of it. It may have increased the desire for a soft Brexit. It has reduced their capability to deliver one Mm -hmm. because they don't have a negotiating hand going into Brussels uh, who will give them some time because Brussels is going to have to make a judgment. Is the woman sitting across from me going to be here six months from now? And if they say no then what did they do? We've a little bit of Ken Clark, actually, the grandfather of the House, uh, when he was re-elected on Thursday night, talking about whether there was any going back on Brexit. I've come to the conclusion, no. I mean, I thought it was a parliamentary thing. I never liked the idea of having a referendum. I hope we never hold any more referendums on anything again. But when we got to Parliament, uh, I stuck to my principles. I voted against invoking Article 50 and the government had a huge majority, uh, despite the fact that the vast majority of ministers and the vast majority of MPs agreed with me. And they all agreed it wasn't in the national interest to leave, but they'd all promised themselves that they would be bound by the referendum because they promised the public because they thought they were going to win it. And now we are where we are. We are going to leave. I just don't think it's sensible for me to spend the next five years, if this parliament lasts five years, continuing to argue that you know, we shouldn't be leaving. There's been a lot of idiot talk about hard Brexits and soft Brexits, and most people using the phrases have not done the courtesy of really explaining quite what they mean. What matters enormously, and we all agree in broad terms, is we get the best deal for Britain, and that needs to be considered seriously. I hope on a slightly more cross-party basis, because both the parties are hopelessly divided on Europe. They have been for 20 years. And that was Ken Clark saying there's no going back on Brexit. But you see, Terry, what fascinates me about that is he's actually telling the truth. You know, Mark was saying there's still a big majority um, in favour of Brexit. But as Clark is pointing out, in the House of Commons, actually, the vast majority of people think it's a crazy idea. They just feel they have to go along with it because they said they would, assuming they were going to win the referendum. Is there no one who can pull them back from the brink when none of them actually agree with this? I'm not sure that it's true to say that none of them actually agree Well, of with course, and sorry. I think yeah. also that there is a case in politics and in life for frequent use of the serenity prayer where you have to recognise the things that you can change and the things that you can't change. The people have spoken, God damn them, is a great old phrase about referenda. The people have spoken and it is up now to the government to get on with it. But... There is an implication in all of the coverage that Brexit was the only thing that mattered. That is not true. Life Mm. goes on in Britain. And part of the success, relative success of the Corbyn campaign was that he said simple things that people understand. We should abolish university fees Mm. as opposed to the convoluted tripe that uh, his opponent said, which was we must ensure that no graduates leave university bowed down by debt. What is the difference? One is simple and interesting and relative to people's real lives. Um, So, Sebastian, I know you've been arguing from the start. The Brexit deniers need to just get over it. The train is going on. But given the result of the election, what kind of negotiations can take place now? You know, May's going to go to talk to Michelle Barnier and they're just going to be laughing at her, sure. Well, in a strange way, actually... The point that I've been making before is that within the Conservative Party, much as much as people in Ireland don't want 
Brexit to happen. Within the Conservative Party, it was an article of faith as much as a united Ireland is an article of faith for Sinn Féin or Fianna Fáil, and they won't change their minds. Actually, I think this does change things potentially massively on Brexit because although, you know, we haven't got this sense that the politicians are now moving against Brexit. And Jeremy Corbyn is anti-EU because it's a vast capitalist conspiracy. Mm. So that's part of the issue. But but I think, you know, realistically, the negotiations are going to be incredibly difficult with a weakened prime minister. And, you know, Europe is going to sense that. Europe is going to seize on that to make it more difficult. I think it's not impossible that the entire project starts running into the sand the things that then go before Parliament and future Parliaments are unacceptable and it all falls into a bit of a mess, the result of which may well be another referendum, perhaps with a different question. You know, And this is as someone who until now has been saying, as you said, in terms of the Conservative Party, that train has left the station. But if the tracks fall apart, we may have to think again. Right, and hopefully you'll be back in studio to talk about it should that happen. Sebastian Hamilton, Terry Prone, Mark Hennessy, many thanks for joining me this morning. You can actually hear Phil Hogan's views on the Brexit debate as well. I interviewed him last week in Brussels and that interview is podcasted on Newstalk.com. Stephen Jordan produced Aidan Kelby Research and thank you for listening.